Science applies to just about every aspect of our experience on Earth, whether it is physically, biologically, or socially. Our thoughts and actions create a process that affects the world around us. And it is explaining that process in its most basic form that we discover where science meets life. I'm Jacob Rueda. And I'm Joseph Arrington. Join us as we go on a journey to understand what science is and how it affects us. This is where science meets life. For most people, research is something primarily associated with medical or life sciences. However, properly funded and conducted research can be done by a company, agency, organization, or any research group looking for trends and patterns in behavior or action. Speaking strictly of life sciences, a 2015 UNESCO report says the United States conducted 46% of global research and development in life sciences. The report called the United States, quote, the world leader when it comes to that type of research. However, a lot of medical and other scientific research falls by the wayside or fails to be recognized, and that is starting to get noticed. In September 2018, journalist Aaron E. Carroll wrote in his article for the New York Times about different institutional biases that prevent some work from being recognized. For example, one of the biases Carroll talks about is called outcome reporting bias, which is, quote, writing up only results in a trial that appear positive while failing to report those that appear negative. There are other biases that Carroll mentions that prevent some researchers' results from being published. But biases are not the only reason some research fails to be recognized or is even allowed to move forward. Meanwhile, other research that is dismissed can be resurrected and become a component or foundation for other research. Dr. Stefan Geller, a biosciences professor at the University of Salzburg in Austria, wrote in a 2015 paper about long-forgotten research by German physiologist Ernst Wilhelm von Bruck on muscle dynamics. According to Gellar, when the research was rediscovered in 1954, it was used to form something called the sliding filament theory. He writes that Brooks' research was forgotten because scientists at the time regarded the findings as out of fashion when they were published in 1858. The main point of Gellar's paper is that scientific progress can be stunted by the scientific community failing to recognize work for one reason or another. That failure of recognition amounts to work that ends up becoming a mere footnote on a researcher's resume or CV, which in turn affects outcomes, researchers themselves, and the public. Today we are talking about research projects. If you will recall from the previous episode, my co-host Joseph had mentioned a phenomenon uh, that he has seen affecting research, and that is something that he calls CV decorations. Now, we'll, we'll get to discussing the details of that later, but first I'd like to talk a little bit about what motivates research. Now, something that you had mentioned to me beforehand is this idea of conducting research for the sake of simply obtaining knowledge about right, something, right. right? So there are different views on having knowledge for the sake of knowledge, as it's been said, as you call it, so to speak. So one such person in favor of this is woman named Megan Howell, and she writes for the Georgetown Voice. Now, she is an undergraduate teaching assistant at Georgetown University, naturally, according to her LinkedIn profile. And she wrote an article for the Georgetown Voice in 2015 about the value of, quote, knowledge for the sake of knowledge. 
And specifically, she mentioned something called perennialism. Have you heard of this? No, no, I hadn't. No. Okay. So what it is, it's a philosophy in education that says, and I got this from Wikipedia, it says, one should teach the things that are of everlasting pertinence to all people everywhere, and that the emphasis should be on principle, not facts. Well, that sort makes of, sense. That, yeah. That's the tenet of, of perennialism. It's sort of like right. how public school is kind of like why they teach what they do yeah right in in the in the rounded manner that they do so she writes that knowledge for the sake of it is quote all well and good but she also says that it cannot be easily incorporated into daily life but despite that she writes you may not see the surface level benefits of reading chaucer if you plan on being a physical therapist and you may not see the point of learning the art of scientific reasoning if you want to be a ceramicist yeah, you know, that that quote and, and like what she's talking about, it really hits home for me uh, because recently um, I had a conversation with my 12 year old and she was, uh, you know, doing that complaint that children of school age normally complain about. Like, why do I have to learn this uh, like long division or, or algebra or whatever it is that, that she's currently doing in middle school? You know, and I, I explained to her that sometimes skills that we learn in one thing can be, you know, transferred to another skill. Uh, and I actually learned that in a motor behavior course that I took because, you know, in reality, when you learn such things, it's kind of a form of exercising your brain and, and you know, making that quote unquote muscle stronger. But, you know, here I am again. I'm trying to find the functionality of all of this. And, and the point of what she's saying is that there's knowledge for knowledge's sake. And I'm just like, yeah, but. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, she does go on to say, and I, I'm quoting her again. That knowledge for the sake of it enriches one's ability to appreciate works where the principles of one thing can be applied unto other passions. So one of the things that she writes about is how English teachers benefit from learning calculus because it inspires them, she writes, to incorporate a different kind of analysis than is typically used in literature, she writes. Okay. Okay. I mean, okay. So she, she kind of is saying what I was saying before. So they're, they're like, it's not simply for the sake of it, like in a roundabout way, I guess she's saying like that there doesn't need to be an obsession with finding a direct application of, of what you're learning, but it can simply indirectly inspire your learning in other fields. I don't know. Am I completely off? Well, I think, I think it just goes back to what you were saying earlier. I think what she was trying to say in summary, is that the skills that are developed in the course of learning something can be applied when learning something else. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, that's a much more succinct way of what I was trying to say. <laughs> so, on the opposing end of the argument is a gentleman named Jose Alberto Mainetti. Now, he is an Argentinian, an Argentinian physician and philosopher who is faculty over at the National University of La Plata in Argentina. And he wrote a paper called The Ethics of Diagnosis in the Journal of Philosophy and Medicine. I'm not surprised that he's a physician then. I mean, I, I come from a background of medicine and healthcare and everything, so I, I could see why he and I would like lean more toward saying what I was saying beforehand about like all research as a means to progress things and stuff like that. <laughs> right. So in his article, Mainetti writes, Diagnosis is not knowledge for the knowledge's sake. It is knowledge for the sake of action. So he writes that medicine is meant to cure 
and that medicine is not contemplative. That's what he writes, meaning that it's not something that is meant to act, that it is it's something that is meant to act quickly and not take its time. So in essence, what Mainetti writes is that medicine exists to treat the limitations of humans and therefore must be direct in its objective. So it's not merely there to ponder its condition and see what it can extrapolate to use, then use elsewhere, like in Howell's example from earlier. So those are the those are the kind of the, the polar ends of the perspectives on on learning uh, knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Right. So now that we've covered that, let's get into how research, in your view, Joseph, mm-hmm. becomes a CV decoration. And I have to tell you, I'll be new to a lot of these concepts, but this one in particular is is one that I've I've never heard. So what can you tell me about when you first noticed this phenomenon occurring and how did you come up with the term? Yeah, yeah. I first came up with that or coined the term CV decorations a few years ago. I don't remember exactly when. So when you're trying to get into a PhD program or, or a research program, something like that, one of the things they look at is your pre-existing productivity in research and what kind of research projects you've done. But um, I need to have a research project that gets accepted into a publication so that it is published and the whole world sees it and says, like, hey, this was substantive research. It was significant. So that's part of what is an analyzed to see if you're going to get into these programs because once you get into the field to be a researcher you are competing against other researchers for a limited amount of grant funds because these projects they're expensive you have to be able to pay salaries for people on the team pay for supplies and maybe pay compensation for people who might be subjects of the research like oh i have to travel from here to here to be able to meet with the research team and so compensate the people for their time and and travel when you're competing the people looking at uh, who they're going to award grant money to they they want to say okay so am i going to give this to somebody who i know is going to be somebody who can uh, move forward with my with and use my money responsibly let me see their history and they say hey you know what this person they have a, a history of productivity I trust them with these funds. So what happens is uh, the people, they, they're like, okay, I'm going to do this uh, project and then uh, I'm going to move on to the next project and the next one. However, when they're moving on to these projects, they do have their past research and their past projects. And if they're not focusing on those, if they're not, because every research project that happens is a snapshot of, of a piece of the the, the puzzle that they're trying to solve, that they're investigating. And so they go and they say, hey, here's what we investigated. We came up with these findings and uh, we think that it'll be helpful to, to people. And then they move on to the next project or they, or they continue on the project they are already doing and they evolve it. But oftentimes, a lot of times, people move on to the next one that they can get grant funding for. And we can, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the nuances and all that. But uh, in the end, those projects that they did work on, they end up on their CV and it doesn't move forward a lot of times. Or it might take years later for somebody to circle back around and, and pick that that research back up. And so then it just sits on their, their CVs. Mm, I see. So based on what you're saying, they become decorations as you call them on their CVs. Once they just no progress has been made on that. 
exactly. Yeah, the, the projects happened. They were awesome. But for various reasons, and we'll talk about a few of those, but for various reasons, they just end up sitting on the decoration, I mean, on the on the CV and decorating it. And yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, like, like I mentioned, it's, it's complicated. There are a lot of different reasons. One aspect that comes to mind comes from those who are at the, the beginning of their career. Like I mentioned, there's sometimes you're like, oh, okay, I'm wanting to be able to get into graduate school or, or land a, it's called a postdoc. Once you finish graduate school and then you move on to a, a, an initial research role, it's a, it's a postdoc. And so they're, they're, they're trying to, to build their career, build a name for themselves. And so they start churning out these projects because they know that the more projects, especially if they end up being published in a journal, and we'll talk a little bit about the nuance with that in a moment, uh, that, that they will be more attractive to whatever program that they're applying to. So what exactly happens to those projects after they get to the program I mean, they end up taking a back seat. And that, that, that's not uncommon then for the research to become like the end product for a lot of people, the, the means to an end. Uh, for instance, you know, there's a, a researcher I know. His name is Dr. Daryl Trailer. He received his PhD in, um, I believe it was uh, healthcare innovation. I think there was nursing involved in there as well. And it's like healthcare innovation, as, as you know, we've talked about this in the past. It's a subject that's very close to my heart, implementation science. However, he got his PhD, but he's going through a career change to actually become a physician to treat patients one-on-one -on -one and not just do research. And I don't mean just as, oh, I mean, just like he, he's, he wants to do both. He wants to do research and he wants to treat patients as a physician scientist. And uh, he recently made a comment on his social media that I think is very pertinent to this topic. And I'm sharing it with his permission. I came pre prepared with what he said. Let me pull it up here. Everything in medical school feels like one high stakes exam after another. And my studying is solely geared towards passing the tests as opposed to learning or enjoying the material. Even the research and publishing that I've done in the year 2021 has been more so for the sake of making sure that I'm competitive for residency. And a residency, for those who don't know, is uh, kind of the intern years after one finishes medical school. And so uh, he feels like he's, he's trying to be more competitive, quote, as opposed to me doing the research simply for the enjoyment of it, end quote. And, and he's a great guy. I met him digitally uh, a few years ago. And yeah, I mean, he, he's, uh, I really look forward to the day that I can meet him in person one day. Do you think that he would be open to speaking with us about his work? Yeah, actually, uh, when, when I was asking him for permission, like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be uh, doing a, a podcast on this subject. I saw that you were talking about this here. Uh, can I share that thought? And he said, yeah, definitely. And I, and I said, you know, you also have a very unique career path. Uh, and I, I'd love to, to talk with you and see your, your insights and your many years of, of being in academia and being a professional. And he 100% he said that he, he would love to, to be a guest. So, yeah, well, let's go ahead and coordinate that with him. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, yeah, back to what I was saying. Right. So you were talking about early careerists and their projects being more for building up their future. I wanted to ask you, what effect would this have in the medical field in the long run? I don't think it's going to have a, a, a different effect because it's it's the status quo. It is what has been happening. It's It's like the default setting. So, I mean, medicine and, and research, I think, will continue on the path that it already is on because this is just what's 
basically always been happening. And I'm not saying that all researchers, I'm not saying all undergraduates or graduates or PhD candidates or whatnot are in this, but it is a significant factor. And there are people who do behave this way when it comes to their research. I want to go back to something that Dr. Trailer was saying. Are medical schools aware of this emphasis on passing as opposed to learning? Yeah, yeah. And they are taking measures to actually uh, fight this. For those of you who don't know, after your first two years of medical school, you take your first board exam. It's the, the step exams, the USMLE. I, I call it you smile because it doesn't make you smile because of how much students have to study for it. And um, what started happening over the past, I don't know, two decades, decade, I don't know. But the, the students started seeing and realizing how important getting a high score on step one became their first board exam, and that's after the second year of medical school. So um, they would go on to different uh, websites and different programs. One of them was uh, popular with many people in the, the health field. It's called UWorld. And so, and this was a, a common phenomenon that was being seen. Students were in lecture, but they had their headphones in. They were not paying attention to what was actually being said in the lecture. They were just going through and going through UWorld practice exams and just trying to memorize and it almost became trivia to them they were just trying to memorize as much as they could so they could just regurgitate everything that they had learned over the past couple years from you world and their lectures and so one of the reasons that uh, the academy that oversees this and all medical school directors they all were a part of this decision they made a decision to make step one pass fail instead of being scored so that people they, they still i mean you still there's a high threshold you have to pass it and and you have to know a lot to be able to pass the exam but then it took out that whole oh i'm just going to be studying every day all day to get the best score possible on this exam and one of the things that was happening was not only were they not paying attention in lecture, but the students, they were not participating in things on campus. And one of the huge aspects, and I think all of us, everybody listening, everybody talking can know that whenever we've met a physician who had no interpersonal skills and they were geniuses, but they did not know how to talk to people. I mean, one of the huge aspects of medical school and the residency training is getting those, uh, those interpersonal communication skills. But if you are just in your head 24 hours a day, studying, 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 you're not going to get those. So anyway, to basically answer your question, they, they see these issues happening. They see that, uh, Hey, you know what? Even though you do have to learn a lot and being in medical school is like a fire hose of information, there is a limit and uh, people were taking it to an extreme and measures are being taken to mitigate that. Uh, however, I, I do think that although that is a significant factor in CV decorations and how people just like they would put on their CV. I mean, because it doesn't have to necessarily be with research. I mean, another CV decoration, you, oh, I went and I got a, a 255 on, on my step exam and boom, you do there. But then uh, I don't know how many times you hear people saying, oh yeah, I learned that back in medical school. I don't remember that. I mean, that was, that was 20, 30 years ago. It's like, okay, you got that great score, but you didn't do anything with it. You didn't move forward. And yeah, that, that's, that's just a, a number, a thing like you're resting on your laurels, like the, the saying says. I, I do think that with that, that is a factor uh, with things becoming decorations on people's CVs. I do think that there is a bigger issue at play and it affects all researchers at all stages of their career. 
And this bigger issue is that every day new research is being accepted by journals for publication, accepted as innovative medical devices by the FDA, so on and so forth. All the while, these are, there are organizations, companies, and businesses, and they're, they're dealing with their normal day-to-day operations. I mean, like, all of us have had or have jobs, and we know how we can all just kind of get sucked into simply trying to, like, maintain what we're already doing. We have our, our routine. We have our schedules. And with what time do people in companies, even people running companies, sit down and they think and they say, you know what? But what does the scientific literature say about what we are doing? They may look at some statistics or what things every now and then, but a lot of it's like, oh, based on my past experience, I think we should do this. So I, I think a huge factor in CV decorations are just that there's too much and there's not enough time for people to absorb all the new innovations that are happening. Right. I would like to mention another reason uh, just about innovations not moving forward or going unadopted. Projects don't stay popular and win more funding for, you know, whatever reason. There's various reasons why a project won't win funding. So researchers are then forced to move on to different work. It's not that they don't want to continue with their project. They, they can't. They didn't get any more funding. And so if, if others aren't keyed in to what they're doing, and they're, they're not going to go back and say, oh, yeah, I remember Dr. So-and-so did this research. The project's going to end up falling through the cracks and just getting lost forever. So it's an, it's an inadvertent CV decoration. Well, popularity seems like an odd thing to assign to something like research. So how could research maintain its popularity among the communities or the organizations that are interested in it? Yeah, that. I see that as a huge can of worms that's very difficult to find a control for. I mean, in a tangential uh, way of looking at it, we see how every generation has like their own musical style that they're into. For instance, I mean, we don't see disco anymore or like the power ballads of the late 80s and early 90s. We don't see a lot of boy bands or emo or punk bands being mainstays on the Billboard Top 100 anymore. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't bands who still do some of this stuff. But I mean, they're, they're not the gen pop. They're not the Billboard Top 100 popular stuff because all those things were from their specific era. So in each era, like the music we get, it's kind of based on the styles that producers decide to promote and get trending. And it's the same with fashion trends. It's controlled by companies and all of those are driven by capitalistic endeavors to devote all of their research and marketing and advertising towards swaying people toward what trends they create. Um, it, it's kind of like that in academia. Uh, and academia, for those who don't know, is the, the word uh, that is used for the world of academic research. And it's where we're all pushing to publish our findings. In academia, we have to find an organization, like I mentioned before, that is wanting to fund a specific type of research. And you can go onto these agencies' websites like the National Institute of Health or the National Science Foundation, NIH and NSF, respectively, to see lists of all of the fields that they're interested in researching. So if your research does not fit into what these organizations are, are looking for or needing to progress their, their needs, you're going to be hard pressed to get funding to begin with. Or, you know, you're going to have to devote a ton of time on the flip end if you're very passionate about it and find and scour the globe to find somebody who will fund it. 
and uh, you know polish your elevator pitch or whatever for the research so that it's it's convincing when you do find somebody who might fund it and you know there's a whole lot of nuance here that i'm skipping by the way uh but this is you know this is just a reader's digest version of the major points that i i see are the major points so to kind of sum it up it was pure coincidence that i uh, i saw dr trailer also had something to say about this topic and it was within a day of his other post and this was also i saw it on his social media and uh it mirrored my own thoughts that uh I actually alluded to back in episode one when I was talking about how sometimes research isn't sexy enough to move forward to get funding. He said, it's tough to get something published, particularly in public health. I've had some reviewers question whether or not HIV is the problem. That's a topic that's really near and dear to his heart. And if it, so he was saying that if HIV is the problem that it was 40 years ago, he had questions about that. And the message, he says, that I have been getting is that HIV, PREP, and public health research in general is not very sexy as compared to biomedical sciences research. This certainly seemed to be the case at OMED 22, which is a, a conference that happened earlier this year. It's, it's called OMED. Uh, and this is the year 2022 we're talking about. Uh, OMED 22, when one examines the poster winners and the lack of accepted public health research posters or abstracts as compared to previous years. And so for, for those who don't know what uh, these conferences are, especially the, the poster presentations, you might look back to your elementary or middle school days when you did the, the required science fairs and everybody showed up with their posters and they're like their little volcano sets or whatever. Uh, that's actually training people up if they want to go into research because these poster presentations, they're, uh, <laughs> they're adult science fairs. People work for years on a, on a certain project or, or, and then they show up with these things with their poster and they stand around <laughs> and I've done it several times. You stand there for hours in front of a poster, hoping and waiting for somebody to come by like, Hey, this research looks interesting. Can you explain a little bit more about it? Or the awkward times are when somebody kind of looks over and they start reading it. And so you don't want to bother them. And anybody listening who's, who's been to these knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like you're sitting there and somebody's reading it and you're like, okay, it seems like they're, would you like to hear more about it? And they just, oh no, I'm okay. Thank you. And they just walk away and like, oh, I, I worked years for this. Please, I want to talk to somebody. <laughs> and so sometimes you go like an hour without, you're just, you're just sitting there staring off into space, start talking to the people next to you. But yeah, it's just a, it's a big science fair. People are just sharing their, uh, their stuff. It's uh, it's really, it's a funny sight when you look at it in that perspective. Right. So it sounds like institutions are steering, from what you're saying, they're steering medical research in a particular direction while neglecting some serious conditions like AIDS and HIV because they aren't in vogue as far as they're concerned. And like you said, if it isn't sexy enough, that research doesn't get funded or it falls to the wayside or by the wayside, which would then lend it that particular research to become a decoration on a CV. Right, right. And so, I mean, as, as an example of something that happened, I was at a business competition and I was pitching my medical device. And out of nowhere, it was on day three of the competition or something like that, one of the judges pulled me to the side and he, he was just telling me, oh, I love your, your invention. I love your device. I think it's going to make a, a big difference once you get it out there to, to people. But please know that it doesn't mean anything if you don't win because I'm not going to go into it, but there's a lot of politics behind who wins. And then, I mean, 
I saw who ended up winning some of these competitions, like, oh, this thing on neurosurgical things, and, and it was, or cancer this or cancer that, I mean, and which are amazing things. And it's like, how do you judge various medical inventions? Because maybe somebody doesn't have cancer, and so another device that's helping people be able to walk correctly is going to mean the world to them. And they couldn't care less about the, the cancer research that's happening. Because to them, the most important thing in the world is them being able to walk again. But, and, and this is uh, from a direct example, this is back in like 2018 or something, I was in a competition. There was this amazing device I saw that was like innovating how people were able to walk. And it didn't win anything at all. And I feel like that was going to be a, a world-changing innovation for whoever needed it. But it doesn't look as sexy as oh, I'm able to put a, a catheter cam inside of somebody's body and improve surgery outcomes, which is, to me, equally as relevant and equally as needed. But, I mean, certain things are going to win more funds than the others. Hmm. Well, on the topic of winning, I wanted to bring up a rather infamous award, okay, since we were talking about recognition, if you will. Now, this no, award, this. <laughs> right, so this award made it a point to humiliate researchers for the work that they were doing at the time. Since you had mentioned that research sometimes isn't sexy enough for those who fund them, I think that the so-called award exemplifies to some degree what you are talking about. The award that is in question is the rather notorious Golden Fleece Award. Now, I first learned about it from an article that was written by a chemistry and biology grad student at Harvard University. The so-called awards, right, were started by the late Senator William Proxmire during his years in the U.S. Congress from 1975 to 1989. The awards, and I use that term very loosely... (laughs) were given to government-funded research that Proxmire felt was a waste of taxpayer money. Yeah, you know, uh, I had never heard of this award until you mentioned it to me. You we seriously have never episode. heard of this? Uh, I hadn't, until you mentioned it to me when we were prepping for the episode, I had not. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I just remember your your reaction. You were quite stunned, if not shocked, that yeah, I had... Yeah. That I'd re- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to me, it flies in the face of what I think research is for. I mean, to 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 mock. I mean, you know, at, at the same time, it kind of makes sense because I I remember in high school, I was tasked in uh, with making a, a hypothesis for a biology class that I was in. Uh, I went to my teacher and uh, I asked if I would still get credit if my hypothesis failed. And for those who went to to West High School in Salt Lake City, you might know Mr. Eckberg. That's who I was. It was his honors biology class freshman year uh, and he he said that for his class it would be fine if the hypothesis failed because I'm still technically adding to the knowledge by showing what doesn't work right however he did tell me and he explained to me that in the real world and I learned this later firsthand experience in the real world no one would fund a project like that and that those with the money would only want to fund something that they know will be a success now as far as the awards themselves the first research to win this award was research done by a psychologist named Ronald Hutchinson. Now, he conducted a research on why rats, monkeys, 
and humans clench their jaws. Now, on the surface, the study seems interesting to me. Right. Well, you know, but on the surface, for somebody who doesn't know, I mean, I know when I read this, I was like, well, who cares? Because it seemed pointless. The study seemed pointless. Why would you care if somebody, you know, clenches their jaw? However, the research also measured, quote, behavioral manifestations of aggression, like jaw clenching. And it helped NASA and the U.S. Navy examine hostile behavior in confined spaces like submarines and spacecraft. You know, and and I hope that researcher was able to send a note to those running the awards showing how wrong they were. Well, with regards to sending a note, Hutchinson sued Proxmire for libel and defamation. (laughs) Okay, so, okay, so this award was not taken in jest, okay. Yeah, I, I thought everybody was, like, in on it. I mean, like, for instance, there's there's the Razzies. Uh, right. And uh, I remember when Halle Berry won, I think it was in the late 90s for Catwoman, she showed up with an Oscar in hand that she got for Monster's Ball. And so she sat there, she held her Razzie in one hand, and she held her Oscar in the other. It was, it was like, oh, that's funny. And yeah, so... Okay, apparently that's not the case, though. So, I mean, you know, this just, just seems overtly cruel when you take into account the fact that these research projects aren't like capitalistic money-making machines like, like Hollywood is, but, but these are people bending over backwards trying to make the world a better place through research. Well, in the course of demeaning his work, Proxmire had called Hutchinson's work nonsense, and he did it on the Senate floor, to his staff, and in newsletters. When Hutchinson sued Proxmire for this, the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court in 1979. And there it was ruled that Proxmire's speech was not protected under the Speech or Debate Clause in the U.S. Constitution, which is Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1. And the text of that basically says that a member of Congress cannot be sued for slander during a congressional debate. However... The technicality of that clause did not protect Proxmire, and here's why. Because in a nutshell, Proxmire, who was a high-profile high public figure at the time, he meant to hurt and discredit Hutchinson, right. Okay, who was a private person. He was a private individual. Nobody knew who he was. So he meant to discredit Hutchinson and his research in his newsletters and speeches. In legal terms, Proxmire intended what is called actual malice toward Hutchinson. And as a result of that, his speech was not protected under the Constitution. And for anyone who is curious, the standard for actual malice was set in the landmark Supreme Court case of New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964. Okay, so yeah, I'm I'm assuming that these awards then stopped after this. No, they did not. (laughs) So he continued the practice even after the suit? Yes, the awards were <laughs> retired, retired, mind you, in 1988, just when Proxmire left the Senate. I'm at a loss for words. Wow. Mm. Wow. Well, in contrast to the Golden Fleece Awards is the Golden Goose Awards. Now, where the Golden Fleece Awards noted what one politician felt was wasteful research, the Golden Goose Award celebrates the best and innovative science research. And they were also started by a politician, a man by the name of Jim Cooper from Tennessee, 
The awards began in 2012, and the recipients attend an awards ceremony in Washington, D.C. I mean, that, that sounds like an incredible change of events, moving from disparaging scientific research to actually celebrating it. That's right, indeed, right. Now, according to the awards website, the Golden Goose Awards were started as a response to Proxmire's Golden Fleece Awards. Now, both of these awards focused on federally funded research, so the government funds this research. However, Cooper decided to take an opposite approach to Proxmire. He celebrated research instead of putting it down. Now, I want to tell you something, okay, mm -hmm. that you as a researcher must be aware that scientific research, like economics, is apolitical, and it does not matter what any politician says about it. Now, you had, you had mentioned to me before we recorded this how Proxmire's award would potentially scare off scientists. And you even said this earlier today. I also remember telling you that if Proxmire's attempts to stop scientific research through humiliation were at all successful, then no one, no one would have conducted any research because they would have taken Proxmire's attempts to humiliate people seriously. Right. But, but they didn't. And in the end, Proxmire was sued for opening his mouth, and he lost. So that should tell you something about the limits not only of free speech, but of intimidating the scientific community. So had Hutchinson been intimidated at all by what Proxmire had said about him, he would have kept quiet, but he didn't. He had faith in his work, and remember, it was used by two government agencies here in the United States. That's a very important thing to note about this situation, okay? You can't just poke people just because they don't like them, okay? Someone is going to fight back and say, no, you can't say that. Proxmire's attempt failed. That's all I want to tell you. It failed. And it inspired something better to come after it. So I think that's, that's a very important point to make. Now, with all that said, I'd like to ask you if there is some kind of protocol to prevent research from becoming obsolete, or like you say, merely a decoration on somebody's resume? <laughs> no, or at least I don't know of any. I mean, in a way, I, I kind of see it like the Wild West, and it's weird to say that in 2022. People train to become researchers. They create their niche of what types of things that they're going to research, like neuroscience, agriculture, sleep medicine, geography, history. I mean, there's anything you could be a researcher in. And, and then once they, they, go, they just go and they create and they, they go and they investigate because there is a level of autonomy, you know, that's granted when one earns the title of doctor. And as long as, you know, they're, they're securing grant money and continuing to be productive, and, you know, bolstering the reputation of their home university organization as, along with it, uh, as long as they're doing that, then everything is, is fine or good. If they're not, then interventions start happening with management and whatnot. And if things don't change, that could lead, just like in any job, to somebody losing their job. And, and then the person has to scramble to find another role or they just leave academia in general to move on to an industry job. So some company can make use of their research skills. I mean, that, that's where the phrase publisher perish kicks in. Right. So let me ask you, what happens to uh, these deserted projects? They're gone. Yeah. Mm. until someone resurrects it or someone else coincidentally starts a similar project somewhere else and in their literature review or whatever they, they find and that's them like going back and, and saying oh what's the history of this topic who, el who else has already touched things on this they may find the project that got abandoned and they resurrect it that way mm. so you had mentioned earlier that researchers are working to stay productive so do companies and institutions maintain 
interest in projects through that productivity? I don't know if I ever thought about it that way, maybe at least consciously thought about it that way. I suppose if someone is diligent about their research, it can help. But if it doesn't make an impact with the scientific community, like like if they don't, if they publish and and scream about it from the rooftops and and still the general consensus of the of the people reading or hearing about their research is meh, eh, they just shrug and walk away, then it's it's out of the researcher's hands really. I mean, if it didn't make a big in- impact, I can see getting future funding for it would be difficult. Right before the pandemic, we were having a departmental meeting at my job at Intermountain. And this research, and I, I wish I remembered his name, this researcher came in from another state and he, he presented to our, our department during that hour uh, working lunch. And he was talking about this amazing research that he was doing in, into delusions and, and the effect of staying in an operating room or in the the ward after being operated on for a prolonged period of time has on the brain and uh, he gave a really crazy story about this guy who had been i think 14 days in this room and and nobody had really thought about what happens to somebody when you are trying to recover you can't move around and you either watch the tv or you have a white wall and you can't move because you just like got through surgery so you can barely move or mm-hmm. anything. And so you're just staring at like a TV or a white wall and you maybe for 15 minutes to an hour, somebody like a family member comes in, you talk to them. But then like for the rest of the time, you, like every hour or so, a nurse is going to come in and say, hey, how are you doing? How can I help you? Or like change out the bags or whatever for, for urine or whatnot. But I mean, in the end, they're, they're, of their time is just sitting there in that bed. And he said, this one guy, he, he all of a sudden saw something out of the corner of his eye and he looks and he said, there was a big black Panther in the room and it started like lunging toward him and he screamed and freaked out. But then he realized it was a hallucination. The the guy was going mad. And, Mm -hmm. and so he first did a qualitative research on this. If I'm remembering the order of events and qualitative research is basically analyzing and getting information from people based on how they feel, like asking them questions and surveys and then comparing all of the people who you asked to see if they have similar answers. And so he did this qualitative research and like, oh, okay, so we see this happening. And then it and it evolved over time, skipping a lot of details, it evolved over time to eventually seeing research where he was able to show that people who had these surgeries and were stuck in the OR afterward for prolonged periods of time had physical changes to their brains and how it was affecting their cognitive ability years later. And there was a one person, I think she was like the, the VP or the CEO of a company or whatnot. After her surgery, like six months later, she resigned because she could no longer function in her role anymore. And it was mm-hmm. very sad. She had to do early retirement. She was like 40 or 50, something like that. So pretty young in the grand scheme of things. And so anyway, uh, he wanted to dive more into this. And so this is where it all ties in. <laughs> so he, he goes and he applies for a neurosurgery. And, and I don't remember what his background was, but he's not a brain surgeon. He's not a neurosurgeon. He's, he's nothing with the brain, his, his training and his specialty. And all of his research was just like looking at things, observing things. And so then he applies for a grant from an organization saying, hey, you know what? I want to dive in and see how physically the brain is changing. And it got denied from them because they said, oh, we're looking through your history and you have never like done anything with the brain. And this is great research and you have a near perfect rating score for all of the research you've done to this point. 
but all of the research you have done has nothing to do with this. And we don't know if we can trust our funds with you because we don't have any evidence that you know how to cut up a brain. And so, uh, mm-hmm. long story short, he, he went and he found a resource. He found somebody who had a whole bunch of cadavers that they were going to get rid of. And he traveled, I think by car, like halfway across the nation to go to this place. He and his colleagues went and they got the bodies and then they were able to go. And then uh, mm-hmm. they were able to, with the permission, of course, from everything, they had everything signed off, everything legal. And he went, he did some brain stuff and then he resubmitted his grant to the place and say, Hey, look at all the brain stuff I've done recently. I know how to do it. And then he got the he got the grant, mm. but I mean that's that's going above and beyond to be able to to get to the point that you can get some funding. I mean, most people aren't going to be like, okay, well, I want to do research in this, so I'm just going to go and, and teach myself how to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to the topic of deserted projects. Would you consider these deserted projects as decorations, or when do you think that? research reaches decoration status. I mean, to put it in that terms. I'm really glad that you asked that because I could see how the conversation up to this point would make it sound like it's a negative thing. Uh, It's really just a fact. Um, Yeah, it would be a a decoration on your CV. It's not that you're like going out of your way to like, oh, I did this research and then I don't care anymore. Ha ha ha. And I just throw it on my CV to, to bolster my reputation. No, 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 no. They, they show up on the CV as a project and a proof of productivity. But I mean, for whatever reason, the project did not do anything outside of bolstering the list of how many publications or projects or poster presentations somebody has. So what research have you seen that became a CV or that was a CV decoration? Yeah, yeah. So this goes back to uh, an undergraduate uh, medical device competition that I participated in. I was working on my medical device. I had my team of budding scientists who were working with me on it. And uh, we found out about this competition. Like, hey, right up our alley. Let's go ahead and and apply. And uh, we were going to these meetings and there was food and everything. So after after the meeting, they, they gave us some information about the competition. We were all getting our food. And I overheard a group of, I don't know if they were undergrads or masters, or, I don't know. But they were talking about getting into a, a PhD program. And I think one of them was wanting to go into medical school. Uh, if my memory serves, it's been like five, six years. So, and, and I don't remember what the project was, but it was a really, and I actually think they won, that team won some prize money, that competition. And the prize money is meant to like, hey, great idea. Here's some prize money. You can use it to move it forward. And uh, I heard them say, like somebody's like, oh yeah, so what are you planning on doing with this? Because I know you, like, you're going to med school. You're trying to go into engineering, a PhD program. And um, it's like, what are you, how are you guys going to juggle all that? And I, one of them just started laughing and said, oh, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do anything with this. I, I'm, I'm literally doing it just so I can get into grad school. And then the med student was like, yeah, yeah, same here. I mean, then mm-hmm. and if, if they both went into the programs that they were going into, they would be graduating by now. At least the med student would be. Um, and yeah, they were, they were doing it simply to impress the admissions officers. That seems like an incredible waste. Oh, yeah. yeah. So is there a way to discourage that kind of attitude among undergraduate researchers? You know, I... I kind of see this as, as, you know, part of the system. It's ingrained into its DNA. And it's not only with undergraduate students. I mean, it's, I think it's rampant for graduate students as well. Like I, I mentioned uh, with Dr. Trailer uh, and his sentiments, uh, he, 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 he is a researcher. He loves doing research. But even he felt that the research that he loves and he is doing because he wants to make the field better, sometimes he's pushing himself 
to make sure that the admissions uh, or the program directors for his residency when he finished medical school, like, hey, look, look how productive I was. And so it's like, am, am, I, am I losing a little bit of that because I, I have career aspirations? And of course, those career aspirations are so I can be a researcher and a physician so I can go and help people. So, I mean, it's this weird hybrid between the two. And, and, and like for me, to make sure I didn't fall for that trap, I pushed very hard to get my medical device patented. And one of the reasons that's very important is because once you have a patent, then it's kind of like a legal force field around your, your innovation. So that for, I don't know, 14, 20 years, however long, it depends on the, the patent you get, um, that it's protected and nobody can basically copy exactly what you innovated and what you made. So yeah, I did that so that we could have investors and ensure and, and well help make it more likely that this can be put to use, this medical device, and didn't become knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Right. And I know that we talked about it, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. But for this, I mean, I feel like it would be a waste if I invented a medical device and then nothing happened with it. Right. I think some of what you're saying, I think, may work in, for some research. But maybe perhaps not others, depending on the type of research that's being done. Now, I know that earlier we were talking about this, but I'd like to ask this of you again. What are ways in which research, for the sake of knowledge, benefits the public? You know, that, that is an interesting question. I'm, I'm going to have to lean on what I was saying before. Um, it's a good way to exercise the mind in new ways and like help us see the beauty that exists in certain things. I think it could be seen that way. Right. But sometimes it's about beauty. And other times it's about confirming an uncomfortable truth like climate change or recidivism rates among certain ethnic groups. Oh, yeah, uh, I agree with that. And, and what I was saying before about like the beauty is like even art can be diluted down to numbers and wavelengths and mathematical patterns. But, you know, I feel like that loses some of the humanity behind it. There, there might be reasons why art is beautiful. But when I'm staring at a, at a Van Gogh painting, I'm not thinking about that. Like when I was at the, the Van Gogh Museum a few years ago, it was part of my abroad study for my MBA program. I was sitting there and I was thinking about what I was reading about what he was going through in his life when he made that painting and, and what that painting meant for him and, and like the, the placard that they had under the painting. So I guess what I'm saying is that one aspect of knowledge for knowledge's sake could be simply like appreciating the beauty of art, like Van Gogh or, or I think she, she mentioned Chaucer. Right, right. So conversely, I'm going to ask, what are some of the possible limitations of research simply for the sake of knowledge? I'm really glad that you asked that because I was, I was thinking about something along those lines while I was giving my, my previous answer about like, I don't even know how to throw that in there. So thank you for the great segue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in your previous example of knowledge for its own sake, it really got me thinking. Like, so I, I think I'm going to answer this differently than I, I would have like before this conversation. I, I think a limitation would be in thinking of a question and then rushing to find an answer, but not think about the ramifications to people that it's affecting. Uh, there was a mm -hmm. research recently from the Wharton School of Business, and it was saying something along the lines of like genetic testing and how it could lead to increasing people's insurance rates if it was discovered that they had some sort of genetic susceptibility to a certain disease and that was like made public or it's a part of the what you send to the insurance company say, Oh, we're going to ask for this. We're going to ask for this. We're going to do a genetic test. We're going to do this, 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 you know, and I'm not saying that the research one way or another uh, should or should not happen. 
but I believe researching simply for the sake of knowledge without considering the real world implications can lead to terrible consequences. Right, right. So circling back to the idea of a CV decoration, I can see how some researchers may look to take advantage of this interest of improving their careers. So do you think that this is the main reason why research sometimes becomes a decoration on a CV? Is the system in place simply to push the publish or perish narrative? Oh, no, no, no. I, I think, no, no. I hope that I wasn't uh, making it sound like that's the main reason. Not at all. Mm. It's part of the issue. But there are other reasons research becomes stagnant on a CV and more often than not are completely out of the researcher's control. What is causing it to be out of their control? I believe I alluded to this earlier, but like traditionally, the role of the researcher, generally speaking, is to be a theory generator, not like an applier of theory. So researchers create theories to solve problems, like you had explained, but they don't work on how those theories will be applied in any given situations or who will do it. Yeah, I mean, we do see researchers investigating how their theories should be applied, but it's not up to them to go around and like babysit every organization to see if or even how the research that they made will be used in these different places. So whose role is it to apply their innovative discoveries then? You know, it's, it's up to companies, like hospitals, physicians, other researchers. I mean, really every individual person in society, it's up to, to them and us to use our autonomy to decide if and how that knowledge affects their life and how or if they're going to incorporate it into anything that they're doing or maybe just ignore it. But one role on paper of a type of person who could act in this way, somebody who could be a theory applier is someone who gets a different type of doctoral degree, a professional degree, such professional doctorate degrees are like Ed D doctor of education, a JD, a lawyer who is a jurist doctor. I believe it's, it's the term Mm -hmm. even medical doctors. I mean, that's why there are medical doctors who get an MD and a PhD, because technically an MD in and of itself isn't exactly for, it's a medical doctor, but it's not exactly for research. I mean, they end up doing research, but they get additional training later in residency if they don't do a PhD. But anyway, and same for DOs. I, I don't mean to exclude them. just a, Or a, a DBA, a doctorate in business administration. So that's the degree that you've been working on for the past few years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm part of Drexel University's executive program. And this is a program wherein like business people from all around the world, we have people from several countries in my cohort right now. We every, every like eight weeks or so in the pre-candidate stage, we would meet for, in, for about a week at a time for in-person lecture hours. We would live on campus but we would still maintain our management roles at the various companies that we come from. Right. So how exactly is someone who is trained as a DBA different from someone who is trained as a PhD? You know, I actually have a screenshot of what Drexel University says on their website about this, well, just in case. And I figure, yeah, and people ask all the time. It reads, in its simplest form, PhD candidates, and that's some a candidate, is someone who who passed all of the required classes of the doctoral program. And then they move into a phase in the program in which they're, they're only working on the research portion of the degree. And that, that's where I'm at right now. Uh, in simplest form, PhD candidates research and create and test theories. While DBA candidates 
use those theories and processes to solve complex real world business problems. And, and you know, this is obviously a generalized statement. Just like I said before, there are researchers who, uh, who apply and they do research on, on how you could apply their work. But for our discussion, I'm just going to focus on the generalities. You know, someone with a DBA is a professional meant to take pre-existing knowledge that PhDs are churning out and then they work on figuring out how to put that into practice, either into their own businesses or working as a consultant to help other businesses. Of course, this is not at all singled out to only DBAs, but it's, it's one example of someone whose role is to do this. As for how they would do research and the differences between them, the PhD and the DBA have completely different pathways that, that they have for their careers. The PhD, generally speaking, is trained to focus on research and become a professor at a college or university. While the DBA is on paper meant to focus on going into industry and moving the research from academia into use in the real world. And I use the term real world loosely. Hmm. So does every company have a DBA or someone like this whose responsibility is to look for knowledge and how to incorporate it into their businesses? Nope. And why is that? So everything I'm saying is my vision of how things should work. Right. So how do things work now? So how is this problem affecting things in the outside world? Yeah, outside world. That's a better term than real world. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, everything is a bubble in, into an, an right. itself. So yeah. Mm -hmm. But summarizing everything, we have a ton of innovations being created. And one reason contributing to them not moving forward is that there's no secure real pipeline to keep all of these innovations in without them leaking out. People come up with amazing ideas, but there isn't always someone there to, you know, to catch them. Can you explain what you mean when you say leaking out? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I called it a pipeline. So if you think of like in plumbing, you have these pipes and then you can imagine that all innovations being churned out by academics and researchers and whatnot are in this pipeline. But there's holes and the holes these gaps that we see in the pipe, a lot of it, or just we were talking about the reasons why things become CV decorations. And so these, these things, they, these innovations, they leak out of the pipeline and become CV decorations for a myriad of reasons, a few of which we've already spoken about. And so they leak out and they then become CV decorations and we, the people don't get to benefit from them. So how is this affecting the industry that you work in? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a subject I, I, near to my heart. Mm -hmm. uh, in healthcare, it is a documented fact that physicians are overburdened with administrative tasks and a large percent of their, percentage of their time goes to, to that, filling out papers and all this, all this other stuff. I mean, even a lot of my, my doctoral papers that I write for my, for my courses, I start off with the phrase, physicians are trained to be in medicine and to treat patients and then are unceremoniously thrust into the corporate hierarchy of healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not what they were trained for in reality. And, but that's something that they, they learn about throughout their residency and some of the nuances there. But yeah, so, so they have a huge chunk of their time in admin tasks and then the rest of it is supposed to be helping their patients. But then you take physician scientists and I've mentioned those before. Those are people who do both clinic work and research and then they have to split their time three ways. 
but then you have like physician leaders who do clinic work with patients and have a management role. So even more of their time is taken into administration. You have people who do all three of those things, but it doesn't matter. In the end, physicians' time is so limited. How are they going to learn about new research? How are they going to learn about these innovations happening in their own field? I mean, that's not to mention, I mean, like, like I mentioned before several times, there's so many different reasons why things leak out of that innovation pipeline. And so some of those reasons could be uh, like taking into account the return on investment, the ROI of adopting uh, an innovation or novel procedure or a device into their practices, considering what is efficient versus what's already in play as the status quo treatment or, or thinking about how patients will perceive something new versus what already exists. I mean, there's so many reasons. So it creates the leaks in that pipeline that you were talking about. 100%. Okay. So how is this affecting industries in general and what effect does that have on the public? Yeah. So we can look at some of the, the, the like I talked about ROI and mm-hmm. uh, the perception of people, finances, the status quo. Let's see here. For instance, recently with Hollywood and public perception uh, affecting the return on investment. The big thing, and I mean, I'm a big comic book nerd and whatever, the, the recent decision for Henry Cavill to not return as Superman, though it seems all of the other actors from the Snyderverse are going to stay, Jason Momoa and all that. So that's really, I mean, it seems as if part, uh, probably a significant reason that uh, he's not coming back is because Black Adam, the Rocks project, uh, which was supposed to reinvigorate that universe, did not perform as wanted. And so James Gunn, the new head, the new Feige of DC, is changing things up and, and going in a different direction. Another thing, also looking at a return on investment, pushing and influencing innovation. We see a couple years ago, uh, new smartphones didn't have an audio jack anymore. And part of that is to save on cost and churn out these and but have them smaller and not have all of the components of an audio jack and that saves them a lot of money and so we have innovations that many people don't even want uh, and they feel like might be going backwards i'm one of them i, I miss the the audio jack but i mean the money i mean in a, in a recent podcast with uh, dr huberman it was dr lane norton and he was talking about how he said what what funds research what what limits research Money, money, money. And uh, it's just, it controls so much. Um, And then we we see like public perception in in automation. There's several studies and and whatnot showing that if we automated certain jobs, everything would be a lot more efficient. However, and -hmm. this goes back to what I was talking about before, like thinking of the consequences, Mm -hmm. people will lose their jobs or, or a lack of time. You know, and this one can be very personal. Just like how the physicians have a lack of time seeing innovations in their own field, all of us, or most of us, 99% of us, I believe, this is my gut feeling, but don't have the time to innovate ourselves. Mm -hmm. How many of us are not satisfied with our physical condition? Maybe we're underweight, maybe we're overweight, we're not as strong as we want to be, we're not in peak athletic condition like we were in our high school sports or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all have little things that we would like to have more time to, or maybe we're not learning everything we want to. There's a certification that would improve our our career aspects or, or we want to become a better version of ourselves and spend more time with our families and friends and time keeps getting the best of us. And so time as a bottleneck for innovation, just like it is for physicians is for us. 
Uh, I mean, and I saw when I, when I was an active personal trainer and taking clients, that was the, such a huge thing. People were happy that I was able to help them because I would show up and there was that a dedicated block of time that they knew that I was going to be there. And so many times uh, there were people that were, they were doing the work and I didn't need to be there. They knew what they had to do, but just having somebody that they could be accountable to. But, uh, but not everybody has the luxury to afford somebody who can show up and, and kind of be that for them. And time gets the best of them. They can't innovate themselves. Would you say that this is a losing battle? Yeah. It, it feels that way sometimes. I mean, you know, an original part of uh, the research I was going to do for my doctoral dissertation looked at a, what I thought would be a possible solution to the healthcare issue I was talking about with the lack of time. And it would be to implement workers in different hospital departments, you know, like OBG, internal medicine, psychiatry, whatever. Uh, and their job would be to simply absorb as much research literature as they could, filter to what they felt was the most relevant to the physicians and providers they, they work with in their department, and then maybe once a month do a like a 30 to 60 minute presentation about every about like the reader's digest version of what they learned and what they thought was relevant and that would be really awesome in my opinion i mean it's my idea so of course i think it's awesome mm-hmm. okay <laughs> uh, but it would be that the physician would be able to uh, listen and have that digested for them and then with their autonomy that they earned through getting their 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 doctorate they can decide if they liked anything that they heard and then decide if they want to put into practice or not. Now, earlier you had mentioned that it was originally part of your project. Can you elaborate on this? Well, yeah. In, in my investigation, I, I found out that the, there were at least a couple of hospitals that were actually already doing this. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, parallel thinking at its finest. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, be, I believe it was a hospital executive I met from Texas at a health conference a couple of years ago who, who mentioned, I was talking about my ideas like, yeah, yeah, we do this in our, in our hospital. Uh, and he said in, in the short time they were doing it, that they had seen great benefits. Yeah. It, it was basically creating a way to have the, the physicians have that funneled for them. Uh, and since, you know, and since it, I saw and I found out that it already existed in some places, I decided I wouldn't focus on it for my dissertation because we're looking for like new things that haven't been done yet. And I'm, I'm investigating other aspects of innovation adoption for my, my dissertation instead. So is there anything about it that you can share at the moment? You know, I, I'd like to wait until the project's finished. I'm hoping to defend sometime next year in the next few months. Mm. Um, and there's just so, still some things we need to polish and, and get ready. But it is still looking at why innovations in healthcare are lagging so far behind in adoption. Is this a significant lag? Oh, yes. Uh, mm. the current research is saying that the average time an innovation moves from conception to being adopted into a physician's practice is 17 years. What's the reasoning behind that? And that's, yeah, that's the average. Um, I mean, some surgical procedures have been seen to take 50 years to be adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of the reasoning behind that comes from the the what we've talked about so far. I mean lack of time, ROI, too expensive. Hospitals are waiting to see if it'll be more viable. There is a budding field. I think it started in 2008. It's considered an official field in science called implementation science. Hmm. And and it's and that's the thing. It's new. It's like with less than 20 years old. Hmm. And and they're all about looking at this issue and seeing how we can implement things from from bench from the bench where 
ideas are created to bedside or the patient's bedside so that it can actually be used. Right. So it'll be interesting to see what you uncover in your research once you have, once you receive your, your new title. <laughs> well, I am very excited. Well, good. We should be. So do you see your work as having the potential of becoming a CV decoration? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. I mean, like I said before, it's a byproduct of the system. And all of this, I hope no one feels like I'm trying to vilify that things become CV decorations or, or that anybody's doing it on purpose or, or anyone that it happens to. It happens to everybody. It's just a fact. And it happens because the system, I think, needs revamping. We need to have those, those safeguards in place. And that, so I'm not trying to shame anyone. So it appears that there is a sort of information of or research overload that institutions and perhaps even some companies are dealing with as a result of taking knowledge in a specific direction, as we mentioned earlier, as opposed to simply learning new things about a topic or product or procedure. There is something rather forced and disingenuous about this, especially if it's resulting in research that is being left behind for others to pick up, if it is picked up at all. Is there any thought or discussion beforehand as to what the consequences might be of doing this? I don't think so. Like like I was saying before, it it's I don't see it as a conscious, purposeful decision that is made. It's more of a, that's just the way it is. That's what's happening. Nobody's nobody's thought to to impede this or stop it from happening, and that's why implementation science has been instituted so that there is that stopgap. However, like we said, there's a 17-year mm. average gap for things to be adopted. So if we apply that to implementation science itself, uh, we're still a few years away from it being fully adopted mm. you know, by the, the healthcare industry on average. Yeah, so uh, let's see, let's see where, where time takes us. Is there any way to follow the progress of a research paper or research findings to see where it goes or how it's being applied? Yeah, actually, um, it's a social media platform called ResearchGate. Uh, and it, yeah, I think so I've seen it. it. Yeah, yeah, the, the site is right, ResearchGate.net. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can make an account for free. And it's, it's, it's kind of like, like Facebook or any other social media platform. Uh, so you go on the website and there's an option to make an account if you aren't a researcher. Um, but I, I don't know what the process is once you click on that portion. Since I made mine after, I was already a researcher. And, you know, I've actually, I've neglected to update mine as of the recording of this episode. So um, I'm hoping by the time this airs, I will have updated my profile. But yeah, it's it's a nice platform and you can follow and connect with researchers. And, you know, another way that you could do it is just look up their Twitter and or LinkedIn accounts. I mean, you can do that. And although I'm not the biggest fan of Twitter in general because of all the discord and things that happen there, there's a, like a fantastic little corner of the internet in Twitter called med Twitter. And it's, it's a place where all healthcare professionals, like they go and they, they, they post things about uh, medicine that they're wanting to teach people. They have, and they even have civilized conversations about many of like the, both the positive and negative aspects that they face in their careers while working to say, serve patients. And they, and they, they have discourses about them. It's, it's, I love it. It's great. Well, you can go there. Mm-hmm. So, in summary, is there is there a way to stop innovations from becoming CV decorations? Oh yeah, um, it needs deliberate thought. You know, from my perspective, my various years of experience, and you know, I was an academic researcher, 
I've worked as a biotech entrepreneur, healthcare administration. I uh, worked for years as a frontline patient care worker. And all of my, everything combined, my, my opinion has grown to be that the system currently in place, in general, not counting any outliers, it doesn't have a significant anything in place of a significant impact to keep up with the daily innovations being cranked out by the academic machine. There is a bottleneck. And what I talked about are only some of those reasons. Others include regulatory processes of getting new procedures and devices into a place it can, so that it can even begin to be adopted. If you can't clear the approval of governmental agencies and their requirements, whether it be the FDA, the CDC, or the FCC, or the U.S. Department of Agriculture, so on and so forth, then you're stuck in that regulatory limbo until you either pass the requirements or you run out of money and your project dies right alongside your organization's bank account. Mm. Then, then there's also like whether the group has been doing their marketing and advertising properly. If not, no one's going to hear about your innovation. And those who do may hear some really bad adverts, just not properly formatted. And then they're not even going to give a second thought after that. And so for me, I have my angle that I want to help, that behavioral aspect that I'm starting on. And I hope that what I'm doing now will be a good foundation that I can build off from so I can begin to tackle those other issues that I mentioned little by little. You know, it's kind of like that computer game Minesweeper. You start in one corner and just slowly move ahead one tile at a time trying to defuse the bomb and whatnot. But the answer to it all is having several people, just like I'm beginning to try and do, tackle the issue head on and deliberately. There already are many who are doing this in implementation science, but we need more and we need more exposure. If we continue chipping away together at this giant game of innovation adoption minesweeper, then I believe we can slowly but surely pave the way for a better future. Now, I know we've covered a lot during this discussion, but before we sign off, is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't addressed? Just that when it comes to innovations and seeing things moving forward, and I'm going to talk about healthcare because all of us at one point or another are a patient. We need to uh, understand that, that things don't happen in a vacuum mm-hmm. and that a lot of things that are happening are works in progress. If we're not getting the innovation that we want immediately, it's, it's not because of ineptitude or anybody like purposely not caring. There's just so many factors impeding innovations to, to get to, to us. And I, I, I want people to know that there are people like me out there who are working diligently and doing everything we can to make sure these innovations can get to people faster, but it's a work in progress. All right. Well, all right then. Well, thank you very much, Joseph, for being uh, our expert voice today and for sharing this fascinating topic with us. And I want to thank all of you listening out there. I know that Joseph and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen and support this podcast. So until next time, take care. Bye. Today's episode of Where Science Meets Life was written by Jacob Rueda and Joseph Arrington. Music and production was by Jacob Rueda. Join us next time for another edition of Where Science Meets Life.